ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an episode of Talk for Two I never expected to produce, and I am very sad to have to produce. And before I start, I want to say a couple of quick housekeeping things. I'm going to try to do this in one take, because there's a, I got a lot to talk about, and I just want to be natural. But that said, I am going to read the show notes here. You, If you're reading on talkfor2.com, I'm basically giving you a vocal version of the blog post that's going to be underneath this episode. Um... And so if you hear the ums and ahs and I stutter and stammer, I apologize. On December 28th, 2018, the world lost a true American television treasure. But more than that, a truly genuine and nice person. I'm speaking of Mr. Steve Hall, known to millions of country music and puppetry fans as the creator and longtime performer of Shotgun Red. Hall passed away far too soon at the age of 64. Many country music legends are gathered today, February 2nd, at the Nashville Nightlife Dinner Theater for a memorial in Steve's honor. Red was the sidekick to Ralph Emery on the Nashville Network's flagship program, Nashville Now, in the 80s. In more recent years, Steve Hall performed residency shows with his band at different Nashville venues, including the dinner theater where this memorial is being held today. The band also toured the country, the enduring legacy and brand of Shotgun Red, holding true and drawing hundreds, if not thousands, of fans to each performance. And every performance of Steve and his band would end with an all-too-brief appearance by none other than Shotgun Red. And for my puppet people out there wondering, he used the original puppet on all the live dates. He had a backup. I think we talk about this in the interview, and you'll hear in a second. Um, but he toured, his main one was that 30, 40-year-old little character that he got in a hobby shop. The story is really, really interesting. Also in recent years, Hall found success with a YouTube cooking channel that showcased him, along with his fiancée, Miss Sheila, teaching viewers how to make easy-to-prepare yet delicious dishes. The channel was notoriously devoid of a comment section so that nobody could troll or post anything mean, and everyone from little kids to grandparents who remember Red from TV could watch the online videos without fear of reading anything inappropriate. I loved that. It was so wholesome. It was a winning formula, or should I say recipe, that netted Hall, by then in his 60s, I marvel at this to this day, over a hundred thousand subscribers just this little homemade cooking channel uh, i have the gear you know to do something like that but he found the formula he leaned into the shotgun red brand and it was just it was just genius that he was able to do this and we talked often about that and there seemed no end to his talents steve hall was an inventor and he created a breading mix for catfish and crappie which he often used on the channel and he created a fisherman's utility device called the Skinny Dipper. Now, this dipper does a bunch of things. I'm not a fisherman, so I can't explain it. You should go look it up on YouTube. Just type in Steve Hall Shotgun Red Skinny Dipper or just Skinny Dipper Shotgun Red. You'll find it. It does a bunch of things. I know it, you can measure and cut your fish with it. it, it you can pull water up from the lake. It was. It's primarily made for ice fishing, which Steve loved to do. And... Uh, also, other types of fishing could use it as well. I told you you could hear some stammers. Uh, you know, you could use it on the lake, really anywhere. It was this utility device, primarily aimed at ice fishers, but anybody who fishes could use it. Now, why do I mention this? 
Two reasons. Number one, when we were in Nashville doing the interview with Steve Hall, you are about to hear, after we were done, we sat around for hours. If I'd have known at that time how good a cookie was, I would have said, could we please cook? I'd love to taste one of your dishes. But we sat around for hours. I had my mom and my dad there. It was my 21st birthday trip to Nashville. And I called him and I called him and I called him week after week after week for three months. I called the hotline. Um, and finally, one day, we got back from like a Target or something. I was home from college. Um, it was right before the trip in the summer. He calls me. He says, Matt, I said, yeah, you know, in that nice Minnesota voice, this is Steve Hall. I'm calling you back. You've been persistent. I appreciate that. I'd like to see it. I'll do an interview. Please come to our house. So we had my family at the house. My dad ran the camera. My mom just sat there watching and kind of managing and producing the questions. And afterwards, we just sat around and talked. And he showed us this little yellow, It was I'll never forget it. It was this yellow skinny dipper thing, just a plastic sample, I think half the size of, the, of what the final product ended up being. So that's a memory because we just sat around. And it, you know, it was like he was pitching us. My dad said, I thought he was going to ask for an investment. And my dad would have invested because he said, I don't even fish. And that's genius. So that's one reason I mentioned it because he showed us the prototype. It was just this yellow thing. And number two, the main reason is that we have some hobbyist fishermen in our family. So for Christmas, since this was just released in the middle of last year, my mom ordered five of the skinny dippers to give to family. Keep in mind, we saw the prototype in 2015, so she knew how cool it was. Finally, he released it in 2018, so she ordered five to give to family. Now, I'm not a math person. I don't expect you people to be math people, so just, this is real easy, but just follow with me. They came in these long boxes, two to a box. So for those of you following along, two of the boxes had two units in them, and one box was only supposed to have one dipper in it. Well, I say supposed to because in the box that was only supposed to have one, we opened two of them and two and two, Steve put an entire extra skinny dipper in the box. For those of you playing at home, mom got six, even though she only ordered five. He included a cute little note that said, shotgun red, said to add an extra one, Merry Christmas, and I hope to heavens we still have that note somewhere. It was just this this little tiny thing, but it made us both so happy that he would do that. I mean, what small businesses do that anymore? I immediately called him. Like I said, we talked. I had his number. I kept his cell number. I called him. We thanked him, and he explained that he thought since he had already calculated the shipping for three boxes, it wouldn't cost him extra. Why not just throw an extra one in? Turns out he was grateful for that big order of five dippers. He was surprised to see it come through. He was my friend, and we would talk on the phone. That phone call about the dippers was my last phone call with Steve Hall. It was around December 20th. Just a week later, Steve would pass away suddenly while fishing. Just the world is like that, cruel and sad and... But I'll cherish that last phone call just like I will cherish that visit with Steve in 2015. I hate to be narcissistic on a memorial episode like this, but forgive me if this sounds egotistical, but I have to explain something. I've had the distinct honor, two years apart, two and a half years apart, to speak to both Steve Hall and Ralph Emery. Spoke to Steve in 2015, spoke to Ralph fall of 2017. 
Now, I'm going to put Steve's interview and my chat with Red, which actually the chat with Red is only in a YouTube video. I'm going to put them both um, first. No reason to, to not do that. But I'm also going to include Ralph's full interview. Full interview with the broadcast legend, Ralph Emery, who is, thank heavens, still with, still with us. And I would believe he is also today at the memorial down in Nashville. There'll be no interruption by me here in studio between the two. Now, it may not be my place to do this, and if I offend any hardcore Nashville now and and country music fans by doing this, I apologize, but I feel very fortunate and lucky to have both pieces of media. An interview with Steve and an interview with Ralph. And something has compelled me, may not be my place to do it or not, to just put those two great men together one last time back to back like this. It's an honor to do that. Now, you can see the best of Ralph and Red on one of Steve's YouTube channels called Emery's Memories. There is also a personal channel that has a lot of houseboat, excuse me, house houseboat. <laughs> you can hear the Pennsylvania Dutch in me, houseboat and fishing footage called Shotgun Red 1000, all one word. And of course, there is the Cooking with Shotgun Red channel. All three are in the show notes on talkfortwo.com, as well as the link to Steve performing with his former band, Southbound 76, on Nashville Now. This is the last of uh, me you will hear for this episode. To close, I will be including Steve's rendition of The Auctioneer. It is by far my favorite performance of the Leroy Van Dyke classic. Steve Hall, if by some divine power you can hear this, thank you for the laughs, the music, and the memories. But most of all, thank you for your hospitality and friendship. I am just one of many who will never forget your talents and your humanity. Steve Hall. Well, good to see you. I'm from the Handsome Pump Company. We got hand pumps, jet pumps, and triple pumps. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Good to have you here, Matt. Oh, thank you for inviting me to your home here in Nashville. For those of you that may remember, Steve is the puppeteer behind, or should I say under the desk, for Shotgun Red, Ralph Emery's pal on Nashville Now for many years. And you may not know that he's also a very talented musician as well. He had a show for several years on the General Jackson Showboat. You tore all over. Yeah, well, 12 years, 5,280 shows. Then we were gone for about six years. And the numbers got down, so they called me up and said, will you come back? I said, if you give me a three-year deal. So we just finished that three years. Fantastic. We were back on there for another 600 shows. That's awesome. I want to start with your early life. Um, Watching an interview that you did previously, you talked about uh, traveling a lot as a child and ending up in Aiken, Minnesota. Uh, Two questions. Why did you move around so much, and how did that influence the music that you listened to? Well, my father drove truck for Montgomery Wards years ago. Mm -hmm. And... Until he got seniority, drivers back then drove routes that the company gave them. Whether you liked it or not, you're going to Medelia, you're going to Truman, Minnesota, you're going to Aiken, you're going to run this route. And then finally, after we played all over Iowa, and I always do the big thing, we lived in Sheldon, Ashton, Hayward, and Sibley, Spencer, Sioux City, Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, and Centerpoint, and that's no kidding. So we only had about a third of a school year, yeah. and we got transferred a lot because my dad didn't have any seniority. Well, after he got about 10 or 15 years driving for the company, then he could pick the route that he wanted. Mm-hmm. And he loved to hunt and fish like I do, so he picked Aiken, Minnesota, and that's where I graduated high school. And Brainerd was the next town over that had quite a few, you know, beer and nightclubs over there. That, <laughs> and, and we were playing, you know, 
James Taylor music and stuff like that in high school, but I wanted to play country music because I used to bust tables at the 40 Club in Aiken, Minnesota when I was in high school, and this guy named Tim Patterson came in there uh, playing guitar, doing all that Dave yeah. Dudley picking and Merle Haggard stuff. Yeah. Flipped me out. I said, that's what I want to do. So I was actually working with my brother's band at the time, and I quit him, and I went to work playing drums for Tim Patterson's show, and then later on I started my own. Yeah, you had a lot of bands. You had Electric Funeral, Larry Hall Trio, and Steve Hall and the Southbound 76. Yeah, and, so, and that's really what how I met Ralph Emery and stuff. Steve Hall and the Southbound 76, we toured all around, played a bunch of the agency tours where they sent you to Iowa, and then the next time you were in North Dakota, then you were over in Wisconsin. Wherever they threw the dart, that's where you went to. <laughs> and when you go play those clubs, and that was six, seven nights a week, and two matinees and all that stuff, all the traveling musicians and stuff that are out there know about that. And so finally I kind of settled down. A guy called me up, Joe Tucker was his name, guitar player, and he said, look, I'm going to go do a sit-down in Brainerd. I said, gee whiz, I graduated high school in Aiken, 30 miles away. I said, he said, would you come? We'll put a group together. We'll just kind of make it a united group and we'll play. And it was the midnight shift at that time. Mm -hmm. You don't want to say that holding your tongue, by the way, Matt. Yeah, but, <laughs> and, uh, and then later on I got tired of arguing with three, you know, way too many chiefs and not enough Indians, as they say in the business, so to speak, or too many chefs spoil the soup. So I started my own band, Steve Hall and the Southbound 76. We won a few Battle of the Bands contests for Minnesota. You know, remember back when they had the Seagram 7 International Battle of Bands and True Value Country Hardware had all these big shows. We won a few of those and we came to Nashville and I had already bought Shotgun Red at a pet and hobby store. I'm kind of backing up here, getting the cart before the horse. I had bought Shotgun Red in a pet and hobby store at crazy days. I like to fly remote control airplanes and helicopters and stuff. I'm into RC and that. So I went into this pet and hobby store during a crazy day sale or Moodlight Madness where everybody dresses goofy and they have sales on the streets. And I thought, well, I'll go in there and I'll get a good deal on a remote control radio or plane or something. And there was about four or five of these characters laying on the back shelf. And I said, what is that? He said, well, my sister made some of those. I said, let me see the little one there with the big floppy hat. I put a cowboy hat on him later, shotgun red, but, and I picked him up and I started running him a little bit, you know. How you doing there, big dummy? And the guy said, wow, you do that really good, you know. And I said, well, how much you want for him? He says, well, it's really worth about $100, but you can have him for 50 bucks. And I was always going to write a book called Shotgun Red Story from $40 to fame because I said, I'll give you $40 for him. He said, okay, and he sold him to me. And I used him in my band to set us apart from other groups. In other words, when you came seeing us, we did a little comedy segment, and Red would get up on stage, and he would pick on people in the band, you know, why don't you buy me a drink and all this stuff. So when we won a Battle of the Bands contest and went to Nashville, I used him to introduce our band members. Mm -hmm. And Jerry Free, who's been a dear friend of mine for years, I'm getting kind of windy here, but Jerry Free, who... Uh, ran that Seagram 7 International Battle of Bands, he had taken several bands down to Ralph Emery's morning show. Yeah. And Ralph wouldn't put them on the air because he said, Battle of the Bands? This town is full of bands. You want me to talk about you got more bands in town? We got them falling out of the trees, you know. He said, but he'll love that little guy. So we went down and we actually crashed Ralph Emery's morning show. I didn't know we were going to do that, but that's what we did. That's awesome. Now, I'm glad you put the cart before the horse, as you say, because I'm very curious. There's a lot of stuff when you research you and you watch your videos about you being a musician, but I'm really, really curious. This podcast started in the community of ventriloquists and puppeteers. So when did puppetry enter your life? Is when I bought that 
puppet at that pet and hobby store. I had never ran a character. I'm obviously not a real true ventriloquist. I'm more right. of a puppeteer and I run the character. Mm -hmm. But I was just goofing around. I put a little western shirt on him and a cowboy hat to match our band because everybody wore cowboy hats back then, you know, yeah. in the late 70s, early 80s. And when we, when she said we're going to go down there to Ralph Emery's morning show, I had heard Ralph Emery on the radio all the time, you know, yeah. doing the top 10 or top 40 or whatever. So I just had a t-shirt on, my hair messed up, I thought I was going to go down and be on radio. Yeah. And we walked into WSMV Channel 4 television. I said, this is television? He said, yeah, it's Ralph Emery's local TV show here in Nashville, which he had for many, many years. So I ran out the car and got a decent looking shirt and went in the bathroom and wet my hair down a little bit, tried to look a little bit presentable, you know. And Red is sitting in a case like he is over here hiding out on his yeah. mat. And, um, and he says, she says to me, this promotion lady that, and I still to this day don't know her name, but that promotion lady took me down there to Ralph's morning show and said, get him out of the case. And they got the TV show over there going on, taking place. Yeah. And there's about 25 little Cub Scouts sitting in this, look kind of like an audience. That's my cell phone going off. No Ignore that. And um, the uh, and and I said, well, when are we supposed to go on? And she says, we're not. We're crashing the show. I said, we don't have an invitation to be here. And I'm I'm terrified. I'm in a. I've never been to Nashville. I'm in a TV studio. There's Ralph Emery chomping on his car saying. You know, it's 6.45 this morning here on the Ralph Emery Show, and he's got Lori Morgan standing there getting ready to sing, who had never even had a record at that time. And the next act up that morning was the Judds, who nobody would ever heard of. Yeah. And I'm in amongst all these bigwigs, and there's Jerry Whitehurst and the band and everything. I said, we don't have an invitation to be here. She said, look, if you're going to make it in the music business, you got to walk on thin ice. Get him out. I didn't get up at 4 in the morning come down here and have you not get him out of that case. Yeah. I thought, well, okay, so I got him out, and all these little kids are giggling, and they're pointing at Red, and he's looking around and stuff, and Ralph Emery keeps looking over there, and he's talking, he keeps looking over there, and finally says, well, we'll be right back with the Ralph Emery show right after this, and they went to black, and here he come, <laughs> and he walked right, and I'm, my heart's just about ready to fly out of my chest, yeah. you know, because I'd never even met Ralph Emery before, and here I am disrupting his TV show sitting in... And I'm sitting here, and Red's right here next to me, and he walks right over to Red. He don't even look at me. He walks right over to Red, and he's chomping on his cigar. And he's looking about 10 inches from Red's nose, and he says, How does that work? I thought, it's now or never, Matt. I didn't, I didn't say anything. Yeah. But Red looked right at him and said, You know, I went to that same garage sale. I didn't think anybody would buy that suit. <laughs> And his cigar come popping out of his mouth, and he just went crazy. And there was a guy named Killer, his assistant, and yeah. he's since passed away. But he said, Killer, get over here. Get this guy's name and find out why he's here this morning. i got to get back on the air. This all happened in that two-minute commercial break, you know. And he put me on stage, and I've got, you know, pictures of me and Shotgun Red sitting there on that morning show. And about, I guess, six months later, I got a phone call. We, I actually went back down the next morning. There, there's another story. I don't know how long you want to get no, into please, this. but whatever you want to share. But, but uh, I did that. We were in that Battle of Bands thing, if you, want, if you will let me embellish here, I guess. Please. This is unknown. You were talking about Mark Peterson. Yeah. Well, Mark's been a great friend of mine for years. He wrote Cadillac Style for Sammy Kershaw, Refried Dreams for Tim McGraw. He was in my band at the time. Yeah. But he also, he's had an abuse problem all of his life, and we've always tried to help him, but he's got to help himself as well, as you know. So. Yeah. 
But him and Ernie, my steel guitar player, the next day, this was on a Friday on Ralph's morning show. The next day on Saturday, uh, they went down to, to the Opryland Hotel to that Gaslight Studio. They were taping that Nashville music, and Ralph Emery was the host. But they went down there to see Phil Ball on guitar and Buddy Emmons on steel, Ernie and Mark did. And Ralph happened to walk by. I've never told this story to anybody before, okay? And you're a pretty persistent guy. You called me a bunch of times, so I thought I'll, I'll share this with you. Ralph went walking by, and they said, Hey, Ralph. I said, Hi. You know, we're in town for the Battle of Bands competition. He's kind of like, Hi. He says, Our boss band, or of our band, was down at your morning show yesterday. Who? He said he had a little shock and red, the puppet guy. And he said, Oh, man. He left before I could get his phone number. Would you have him call our office? because we're starting a new thing in about six weeks called the Nashville Network. And I got an anchor show on there called Nashville Now, and I think I'd like to use him on my TV show. Uh, and he become Ralph Emery's sidekick on Nashville Now. Yeah. Then we also did Hee Haw and Buckmasters, and now we're on RFD TV with the Shotgun Red Variety Show. But So they left and walked out of there, and Mark looked at Ernie and said, I don't think that's fair. We all came down here as a band, and he's the only one that's going to get a break. Let's not tell him about it. Oh my gosh. Honest to goodness. So all day Saturday went by, all day Sunday went by. I could have went right back to his morning show, and God gave him all my information on Monday. They never said anything. Monday we went into the studio as part of our being in the top seven. We got to record. We left on Tuesday and flew all the way back to Minnesota, drove all the way to Grand Forks, North Dakota, and we're standing in a club on Wednesday night about 11 o'clock at night, and Ernie is there, Mark is next to me, and Ernie's on the other side of him, and says, you better tell him. You, got, you just got to tell him. And Mark's like, shut up, shut up, you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, in other words, if we don't, all don't go, nobody's going. You know how that little band stuff yeah. can dwell like that. And I said, finally, so I kind of leaned around, I said, tell me what? Tell me what? And Mark says, well, we went down to see Phil Ball and Buddy Emmons. We ran into Ralph Emery on Saturday in Nashville, and he said for you to call his office because he thinks he can use you on a TV show. You could have blew me over with a feather. <laughs> and I said, why didn't you tell me that when we were in Nashville? And he says, well, we didn't think it was fair that we all went down as a band. No, he didn't. Ernie was all about it, you know, but... He said, we didn't think it was fair that we all went down as a band and you were going to be the only one to get a break. I said, you dummy, don't you realize? Dummy, get it, man? Yeah. <laughs> I said, you dummy, don't you realize this? That if I get a chance to get on TV, our band can get out of these bars and we can play fairs and festivals and, and theaters and all that stuff as the Shotgun Red Band and all that, and it'll benefit everybody. In fact, it took him back down to Nashville, worked on the Jackson with me, and he wrote all these hit songs for all these people and made all this money. Of course, he burned it all up his nose, but that really was that close to me never being on Nashville now. Wow. He never, I never told anybody about that before, but that, he, he wasn't going to say anything. That's, I have no <laughs> response to that other than as you talk about the success that came with it. Does it, as you're sitting here today, does it still astound you? One character and an entire career. Well, let me tell you this. I'm not so sure it's the one character. It's just kind of being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. I happened to crash his morning show. They were six weeks out from starting Nashville now. He wanted to have a character 
because Jimmy Dean was a good friend of Ralph's for many, many years. And the old Jimmy Dean show, we're going way back now, and if, if you're not, you're, you have more knowledge of puppets and, and, and people that run them and stuff, well, it used to be Ralph the dog was Jim was Jim Hansen, yeah. and a lot, that was way before the Muppets. Nobody even knew who he was, mm -hmm. and Ralph the dog, not not the Nestle's dog that went, no, please, not that one. But that was Jimmy Nelson. That, that was, was Jimmy Nelson. Yeah. yeah, and it was, uh, Ralph the dog was on Jimmy Dean's show, and Ralph thought, if I can get a little character on there that the kids will watch, they won't let Mom and Dad change the channel. Mm -hmm. That was Ralph's theory about bringing Shock and Red on board. So we were clear up in Canada, and that's a whole other story, but we flew down on the wrong day. Yes, that's a story that's in one of the DVDs available on your website. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just so fascinating how everybody that has a story in show business, it just, it's one thing after the other, and it just kind of falls into place. It's amazing. Like I said, we were at the right place at the right time. And <clears throat> I just did a sh uh, we just did a thing about a week and a half ago. The Nashville Public Library did a, is doing a series called Nashville Sounds, mm -hmm. and they and they reunited Nashville now. Yeah, Ralph Emery was there. Gary uh -huh. Beatty, the announcer, half the band members, Jerry Whitehurst, a lot of the players came in, backup singers. Uh, Joe Hosteller, one of the producers, was there, and then they brought in some of the acts um, that were on the show. Con Hunley sang the first song on Nashville now, and then ten years later, when it went off the air, he sang the last song on Nashville now. And he was there, uh, Barbara Mandrell, uh, Lori Morgan, um, who was there Ray the Stevens. first day that yeah. you were there and crashed the show. Yes, exactly. And uh, so, and then and myself and Shotgun Red, and they blind, they put everybody on there and they brought me on kind of like last. And I said, well, it was nice that Lori Morgan and Barbara Mandrell opened for Steve Hall and Shotgun Red. You know? <laughs> uh, we had a good time, but we just shot that and that's going to be part of a series that's going to be available. We all had to sign releases because they videoed the whole thing. They brought in a full camera crew and filmed the whole deal, you know. Did Ralph ever get the full story about you crashing the show and stuff? Because the way he tells it in memories, I'm not trying to correct your story, I'm just curious about how he tells it, is that you were in the audience with Red, waving him up and down, and, and that you were sitting in the studio audience. Right, and that's what we were. Okay. We were sitting in the studio audience. That's oh, nice. what I'm saying is, yeah. that's where I got him out, is I was in the studio audience, and there was all these little Cub Scouts oh. were in the studio audience. Oh, cool. We were in the, I didn't, you know, that's where we were. Mm -hmm. And he walked over to the studio audience. I don't know if he ever told it that we crashed the show or not. Yeah. But, you know, we did. And I think he, he obviously knows that. But uh, we, we didn't have an invitation to be there. He knows that much, being the host, you know. Yeah, and, and the question I have here, but you kind of touched on it a little bit, uh, if you could talk about it further. Why do you think Red stuck in Ralph's mind for Nashville now? What impression do you think you made on him with that line? Again, because he matched the theme of the show with a cowboy hat. Mm -hmm. Nashville now, all country singers. Here was this country cowboy, and he was so real. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when, when you know, we can have Red be part of the show here yeah. in a minute, but when, when, when Red, I just can't see Red just sitting there not having an emotion. He becomes... Oh, yeah. Part, he, he really is a separate entity from me. You know, someone said to me one time, you don't, you don't uh, talk to Shotgun Red late night or anything, do you? <laughs> and I always tell them, well, me and Red were just discussing that last night. And, you know, so, but that's, but in the answer to your question is, I think that's why he stuck on Little Shotgun Red is because he wasn't one of those wooden-chinned, mannequin-looking things. He was this soft little dude with his funny-looking nose with a gray mustache. 
he was a, and we recorded a couple of albums for RCA and everything together, children's albums and everything. They're all available on the website too, which is www.shotgunred.com. I just had to, throw, I just had to throw that. No, we'll put it across the bottom. Okay, again. <laughs> and uh, but, um, and and he's he actually reads "Twas the Night Before Christmas" to Shotgun Red and tucks him in, and it's a funny thing because when I first started doing Red, he was kind of like this here, and it hurt my throat, mm -hmm. so it kind of moved up here so it wouldn't hurt so much, and then it got way up there, and then it kind of turned into Ralph. I love you, Ralph. Yeah. Where he's kind of like an old man, but he's a little child. Yeah. And a lot of us, as we get older, we kind of revert back to our childhood. We become almost like a child again. Yeah. So he's this little guy. He, you know, of course, Shotgun Red always says that he's one year younger than Ralph. <laughs> no matter how old Ralph is, but he's the only guy that you know doesn't age. You know, this little Shotgun Red. So. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, you hit on the exact next question. Can you talk a little bit more about that audition tape where you had that original gruff voice with him and doing that without a studio audience? Here's what happened. I was supposed to be on the show. They called me in Canada. We were in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. It's, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. It's <laughs> way up north. And Deborah Bronner, the producer, I talked about this during the TV show in, in, at the National Library. I said, Deborah Bronner, who was at that event, uh, called me up and said, Ralph wants uh, you to come. The show had already been on for a month or two. I called back after they finally told me about it in that club. You know, I called down. They said, okay, we'll get a hold of you. But right now they're in production meetings. They're launching the network and doing all this stuff. Well, after a couple of months in, he really wanted Red on the show. Mm -hmm. So she calls me up. She says, "We would, can you do next Tuesday and Wednesday? This is like next week. Can you do next Tuesday and Wednesday? And I said, absolutely. So I borrowed money from everybody in, the, in my band to buy an airplane ticket to drive from Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada down to Minot, North Dakota, get on a Northwest flight, fly from there to Minneapolis, from Minneapolis over to Memphis, change planes and end up in Nashville on Monday. So, and we were playing through Saturday. So she, she says, okay. She calls me back about an hour later and says, Elmer Alley is the executive producer of the National Network, and he used to have a puppet show years ago, wow. which is kind of coincidence. And he wants to see the care. He would thought maybe he'd be one of them little wooden ones that don't fit, you know, where Red was just so warm and always blowing his nose on Ralph's sleeve and just... He was just adored by everybody. He got more mail than anyone else yeah. on the entire network, even more than Ralph, you know. <laughs> and But he says, he wants to see you first, so can you be here Monday instead? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, now I got like one day, okay? But she's thinking in her mind, she's looking at her calendar thinking, I got him booked for Tuesday and Wednesday. Elmer wants to see him, so can you be here Monday instead? She means the next Monday. And I'm thinking she means... He needs to see you first, is what she told me. Before we put you on the air, he, he just wants to see the character first, so can you be here on Monday instead? Well, first, before Tuesday and Wednesday, is the Monday before Tuesday and Wednesday, not the following week. So I go down, I fly in, I get all the way into Nashville, 1 o'clock, I go over to the Fiddler's Inn, I get in my room, I call up Deborah Bronner, I said, okay, I'm in town. She said, who's this? I said, Steve Hall, Shotgun Red. You said that... You had me booked for Tuesday and Wednesday. She said, yeah. And I said, you said Elmer Alley needed to see the character before you could put me on the air, so be here Monday instead. She said, oh, I'm sorry. I meant next Monday. Oh. Well, now I've 
shot all the financial every money I could get to get down there and everything to do this taping to audition and I'm just crushed. I am just crushed. I'm thinking, man, I can't fly all the way back up to Minnesota and then fly all the way back down a week later. And I can't afford to sit in a motel for a week mm -hmm. waiting to get there. You know, she said, well, just hold on. Let me call you right back. She called Ralph and, and uh, she calls me back in about 15 minutes. She says, Ralph said, do not leave town. He wants you to come over at 1 o'clock today before they shoot the show, that day's show. Uh, Nashville now I want you to come over at one o'clock in the afternoon and we're going to shoot an audition tape and show it to Al Morale because he's not here he's not going to be here till next week you know so we went over and it's in one of those DVDs on our website that the yeah. Yeah, the the first one that shows that audition where he just had me kind of hide out and get under the desk and just a little red pop up yeah. and I had that rougher voice and we did that full audition for nobody. All the jokes and everything was in an empty room, but you could hear the camera guys just falling on the ground because yeah. Red's pulling all of these jokes and he's doing impressions and all this stuff and everything. I've been singing for about 800 years, Ralph. 800 years? Yep. What'd you do before you were singing? Raise three-legged chickens, Ralph. Raise three-legged chickens? Yeah. Oh, come on. Your standard chicken now is a four to eight mile an hour bird. These three-legged chickens can run 75 mile an hour, Ralph. A three-legged chicken? There's no such yeah. thing as a three-legged chicken. Yes, there is. Now, we raised them because I like a drumstick. My wife likes to have the drumstick, and my boy likes to have a drumstick, Ralph. I see. Well, uh, yeah. what does it taste like? I don't know. We ain't never caught one of them boogers. <laughs> I walked back, and I was packing red up, and Deborah Browner comes up and says, Joe Hostetler wants to book you two days every other week on the show. And I said, well, I said, I thought El Morale had to see it. She says... He's going to love this little character. Joe Hostetler says, Ralph Emery gets what Ralph Emery wants, because they, they gave him the anchor show for 10 years. And he said he is putting Shotgun Red on the air, so they're booking you before El Morale even sees you. Wow. So even though they had to run it by the executive producer, everybody had made the decision, because Ralph had already made the decision, I want that little puppet guy every now and then to pop up and be the foil, you know? Yeah. And that's where the audition first came in, in an empty studio on the wrong day, yeah. you know, so. And it let you, again, one of the things on your YouTube channel is a promo f for people to book your show in. Right. And I was watching that, and, and you do something that you don't do on the DVDs, which is tell show business stories. Um, and you talk about when Conway called you up, Conway Twitty, and all these cool things that happened yeah. as a result. It's not actually on our YouTube channel. It's, it's, it's a promo video that's on... Uh, our website, if you oh, click cool. on either poster, it tells you how to book us. Okay. But what you're talking about is the video that you've seen, the DVD. Yeah. In there I talk about, or actually on my live performance I talk about the, the stuff that, yeah, Conway Twitty actually called me at work. I was on Nashville Now. And they said, you got a call in the trailer. And I said, okay. I ran out and picked up the phone. I said, hi, this is Steve. And I said, see you all. Shotgun red. I said, yeah, I thought it was a joke, you know. He said, hey, Steve. He said, this is Conway. I almost said Conway who, you know, because <laughs> it can't be Conway Twitty, you know. He said, we're doing the cruise this fall, and I heard about your band and all the impressions you do and the comedy, and, and I love Little Shotgun Red. And he had, he had a little method to his madness, though. Yeah. He knew if he told 
me that I was going to be on there, that Red would run his mouth on Nashville now. I'm going on a cruise with Conway Twitty for six months, and that's exactly what happened, and it was sold out three months later. You couldn't buy a single ticket because on the number one country television show on Nashville or on television anywhere was Nashville Now with Ralph Emery, and everybody did it. Johnny Cash, Dog, I don't care who it was, Kenny Rogers. Red was, you know, hey Ralph, I'm going on that big cruise coming up in October, you know. Yeah. And then I'd throw in, wow, you can call to get it. So he knew that if he booked it, and uh, but he was, in, in the video, we use it in our promotion for the dolls. One of the biggest compliments to this day is Conway says to Ralph, Little Shotgun Red's there, and he says, he says, hey, you want to see me do Red? He says, watch this, Red. And he goes, and he does that little <laughs> sound, you know what I'm saying? And that's, that's something, do we have time to cover this? Yes. That's something that happened that everybody, you know, man, that's the bestest, you know? Yeah. I never did that. This is right up your alley as your puppet podcast thing. Yeah. Shotgun Red did that. My alter ego did that. One night after the show, a lady came up, she bought, I used to sell Shotgun Red dolls in the crowd after the show and autograph them and stuff, and she says... Um, I see your mom over there saying, we got one. <laughs> she just kind of, and, uh, yeah. and a lady comes up to me and she says, I love little Shotgun Red. He's so cute. And I love that little sound he makes. That little pew. Mm -hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, you know, you'll be talking or something. Then you'll go pew. And he does that little thing that he does. And I actually wasn't doing that. Shotgun Red, the <laughs> character that I was running. Oh, yeah. And it was, it, I think it kind of came out of nervousness like, well, the dog ran down the street, exclamation point. Man, that's the bestest. That was my exclamation point to kind of let the crowd know now's the time to laugh. That's the end of the line, you know. Yeah. You know, some, Ralph, I caught a fish so big the picture weighed six pounds. You know. Mm -hmm. And she says, no, you do it all the time. You did it like three or four times tonight. So back when National Network first started, they didn't have enough programming to fill out the entire year. Yeah. You know, of course, now they've sold it off to Spike TV and a bunch of other stuff. CBS, I think, bought it for a while. Mm -hmm. But back when they first started, they never had enough programming. I'm not even sure if that's correct English. But they didn't have enough programming to, to complete a 24-hour cycle. So Nashville now would go on like at 7 o'clock to 8.30. It was 90 minutes long. They cut it back to an hour years later. But then they would air it that night from 11 to 12.30. Then they would air it the next morning from like 10 to 11.30, then the next night at 7, it was live. And that was one thing that I really learned how to do television more than anything else is. Nashville now was live. It was like being on the Ed Sullivan Show on Sunday nights. If what you said went out of your mouth, you know. Mm -hmm. I was talking to Joe Hosteller, the producer, and one night Red was talking, he says, he says to Ralph, Hey Ralph, he says, you know how you mix orange juice and vodka together? And it makes a screwdriver. And he said, yeah. He said, I got a new drink people are drinking now. It's prune juice and vodka. It's called a pile driver. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and everybody laughed. But, you know, you got to realize this was in the late 70s, early 80s. So you were kind of, you know, walking the line right there for this clean country program. And we went to a commercial break. And, and to this day, we joke about it all the time. Joe Hossett, or the producer, comes over. I'm back behind Ralph's desk with a hole cut in the floor down underneath his chair. So yeah. the floor would come up to about my waist and I had a TV monitor. So I would reach straight over the top and, and run the character up here, which is kind of weird because the monitor's backwards. When you look right, it goes left. 
and when you go left, it goes right. If you take a TV yeah. and turn around, aim it at yourself. So I, I completely forgot about this up here. I just made this work. However I wanted that to do, I ignored my right arm in red, and I had a microphone on there, and I looked at the TV, and I just made it look at his nose and look over here and do that. I didn't think, well, i got to go this way. No, wait a minute, that way. At first, it was weird. After about a week, it was magic. In fact, the, the new producer at that time, Joe Hostler, moved over to some country video program or something. He says, your monitor's backwards under there, isn't it? He's the first guy that ever mentioned that. I said, yeah. He said, I can get you a reverse monitor. So when they flip the switch, when you look right, it goes right. When you look left, I said, no, 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 no. I like it just the way it is now because I'm so used to it, you know. Yeah. But I'm underneath there just kind of, we just finished the pile driver joke. We went to a commercial break and Joe Hostetler came over and he leans over the desk. And here comes this little bald head of Joe Hostetler, producer. He says, pile driver. He says, pile driver. He said, you do another joke like that, you'll be on a bus back to Brainerd, he says. <laughs> so that's been the biggest joke for years now is you're going to be on a bus back to Brainerd if you yes. pull that again. You know? yes, yes. Now, we had some, I want to switch gears because we have uh, people, like I said, a lot of puppet people that listen to this and if they take a look at the audition tape that you do, or there's a picture in that DVD, same thing, um, where he's just half body, where he's just, he's just cut off at the waist. When did you get him legs? I know it's a very technical, very weird question, but we have people out there that are yes, And it has a story behind it. Yeah. I always used to use one, because when I bought him, he was only a half character. Just the bottom of his shirt was it, and I would pick him up and run him in the clubs. And I never really thought about it. And uh, I was on stage at Nashville uh, Palace over here where Randy Travis, in fact, he was in the crowd at the time. His name was Randy Ray then. Nobody even knew that he was going to get signed. And Boxcar Willie was there. He'd become a good friend of mine. Boxcar Willie was there, and I was up doing my routine and doing the comedy stuff and everything. And he had somebody say, call me over to his table. And obviously, you know, of course he died of cancer, but he was just such a dear, dear friend. He calls me over and he says, hi, Steve. He said, I said, I know who you are. I mean, man, you sold millions of albums, you know, Boxcar Willie. And... He said, I don't know how to, how to say this politely, but he says, Shotgun Red needs a weenie, he says, <laughs> is what he said jokingly in this club. He needs a bottom half. He needs legs. He's got to have a butt and feet, and to make him real, he needs a bottom half, he says. And in fact, Boxcar really always said, man, you ought to just get rid of your band, take that. He said, it was me. I'd be on the plane with that suitcase. They'd have a band there, and I'd just get up, do my comedy, my stuff, and I'd leave. I wouldn't drag this band up down the road. Mm -hmm. But I was pretty faithful back then, so that's what I did. But, but he said, he needs a bottom half. He's got to have a butt and a, and a wee-wee, you know, tallywagger. But that was from Boxcar Willie. So I went out the next day, and I bought a little pair of overalls that were about the size of how, what I thought he should be. I took a little pair of cowboy boots, children's cowboy boots, and I stuffed the legs full of styrofoam or foam rubber in the boot, and I epoxied it all in, and then put it put it on him, and then pinned it on, and then cut a slot in the back of the of the overalls so I could reach in, and pretty soon he was sitting on my lap with his little feet sticking out, and had his little overalls on, and but when I would tape, I you know. There was a segment during Nashville now where the people called in. 
And it got really weird because there would be some of the biggest artists in the business, Conway, Loretta, Mickey Gilly, all people sitting on a couch, and people would call in on the 1-800 number and they'd say, Ralph, I got a question for Shotgun Red. And that would go on, and here's all these mega stars, which I'm just starstruck to this day to even be around, you know. And uh, I told Barbara Mandrell that the other night. I said, you know, if anybody knew I was sitting in the dressing room with Barbara Mandrell, they'd probably think I would give their right arm to do that. She said, oh, you're just kidding. She's just a who, you know. But they would ask all the time. So then one night they said, the producer come over and said, we're going to have Red up. In other words, when we come back from a break, we want him up on the camera shot, so it'll be Red, John Anderson, you know, Mickey, whoever was on the couch, because they're going to ask for Red anyway. And then they screened them, so each one got kind of a deal. So I had to keep him up there for eight minutes, and I'd never done that before. And I thought my arm was going to literally just fall off. And because I taped four hours of Country Clips, which was the first, before there was ever a CMT or a GAC, yeah. I had the very first video program ever called Country Clips with Little Shotgun Red. Mm -hmm. And I would tape like four hours and tape like four weeks of shows. I'd fly in once a month. Then they wanted it more current. So they said, we want you to come in here every week and do it because the artists don't want to wait a month for their video to come on the air. In fact, we're thinking about doing a daily program. And I said, well, I won't, I won't leave the band. I said, because when the network is folded and gone, I'll still be working with my band. I've got to keep my band. They said, well, they're going to give the show to somebody else. And I said... You're going to have to do that. So they did. Shelly Mangrum and Video AM and PM and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. They gave her that program. I still came in and did country clips for a while. Then they abandoned it. But holding my arm up that whole time, you're talking about his bottom half. I would have to unpin that and take his bottom half off when I did Nashville Now so I wouldn't have to hold up that character. When he's sitting on my lap, then I can do a half-hour show at a festival or fair or whatever because his weight of him sitting on my leg and just the top half is there. But I'd have to unpin that back behind the desk drop it off and then he would be there with his little black vest. And the little black vest that Shotgun Red wore on TV all those years, someone said he ought to have all kinds of wardrobe changes. And after I'd been on the show for about two years and he always had the same red shirt, I thought, I'm not changing him. Because they always identify him as their little red shirt with a little black vest. But the black vest came out of an effort to try to go get some wardrobe and I went into Cracker Barrel, which they sell a few t-shirts, I went into Cracker Barrel and said, do you guys sell any children's clothes or something like that? And they said, no, no. I said, well, I, I do Shotgun Red. And they said, yeah, we know Cracker Barrel right here by Nashville now. Because I was on Hee Haw and stuff, if you came in there, they'd just have you sign your ticket, and they would feed you for free at, at Cracker Barrel because they wanted Minnie Pearl and Kathy Big, you know, all Buckle ones, all them people over there eating when they were taping. So when I went in, I got to sign because I was on Hee Haw for nine years. She says, we don't have any children's clothes. She says, but hold on a second. And she reached under there and she said, a kid left this here <laughs> about two years ago. And no one has ever claimed it. And it was shotgun red size. She said, so if you want to have it, nobody's ever claimed to take it. So to this day, little shotgun red underneath his jeans, he still has that little black vest on. And that was left by some kid in Nashville, Tennessee, and Shotgun Red wore it on TV for years and years and years. I don't know if they ever knew that that's the little vest that they left at the Cracker Barrel was left by some kid forgot it, you know? Well, i got to tell you, my character, my little boy character, who I guess growing up watching a whole bunch of different puppets, is 
uh, at least in part inspired by Red. Um, she and my grandmother, uh, my mom is off camera, uh, is, uh, they were in Cracker Barrel and they found boots for, for Daryl, that's his name, in Cracker Barrel and they got them and he's been wearing them ever since. So that's just, that that's wild? funny, that's that wild. That is wild, yeah, they're not even really a clothing store. They got mostly trinkets in there and goodies and jams and jellies and that kind of stuff, but they do sell a few little t-shirts. Yeah. Cracker Barrel, clothes for puppets. Yes. yes. Yeah, clothes for puppets, yeah, I never thought about that. Yes. Well, speaking of red. Can we see Is it? Is it time to go get him? I think so. I got some. All right, we are here with Steve Hall and Shotgun Red. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Red? Doing finer and frog hair. Give me, give me four. They give you four. Yeah, I, good I, to see you out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, how's the farm, Red? Man, it's doing all right. I was riding a horse the other day, and I, I got bucked off, and the horse was bucking back and forth, and bucking back, and got my foot caught in the stirrup, and people were screaming, and I could have really got hurt bad. In fact, if the manager of Walmart wouldn't have come out and unplugged that thing, I could have got killed or something. That's great. Now, I have this question I wanted to ask both of you. We'll start with Steve, then we'll go with you, Red. Favorite memory from your time on Nashville now? Oh, boy. Favorite memory? Actually, I think it would be not on Nashville now. It would be when Shotgun Red and Ralph Emery recorded a children's album. Roy Acuff came in, and the three of them sang the Wabash Cannonball on a children's album. And I got a picture of Roy Acuff and Ralph Emery, and Shotgun Red's got his headphones on, and there's Roy Acuff, the king of country music, and Ralph, and that's the kind of stuff, you know? So That's incredible. That is just awesome. Now... What's your favorite memory, Red? Well, let me think. Uh, probably the very first show I ever did. John Conley was sitting on the couch. Ralph Emery said, I want you to meet somebody brand new. Ladies and gentlemen, Shotgun Red. I thought my little heart was going to go bumpity, bumpity, bumpity. All the foam rushed to my head, and I just about passed out. <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, Red, you are a big, big celebrity. What do you think has made you so endearing to audiences for so many years? Well, you don't have to be dirty to be funny, Matt. That's exactly right. That's one thing. And you got some good stories. Some of them are almost true. <laughs> <laughs> and I like kids. I like adults. I just like everybody that needs a little help from time to time. And if you just let yourself be kind of like a little kid, you can tell all kinds of stuff and get away with it. Yes, you absolutely can. Now, Red, what is it like working with Steve under the desk or right next to you? All right, you can read that. Go ahead. That's a question. You're joking. <laughs> What's it like working with Steve? Well, he's my right-hand man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, wait a second. Where's your other hand? I get up here. <laughs> Look at this, Matt. My butt looks like an elbow. Yes. <laughs> you ever get tennis butt? Get up here. Get up here. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, now, Steve might be your right-hand man, but Ralph, for many years, was your bestest buddy. What was your favorite part of being bestest buddies with Ralph? He still Emerson? is my bestest buddy. I got yes, to sir. sing a couple albums with him for with RCA Records, if you That's can believe awesome. that. Joe Galani from RCA came on. They gave Ralph a, one of them big nipper dogs, and they gave me a little teeny nipper dog yeah. right on national television. Yes. So, got another one here. Now, we already went uh, over the memory thing, but um, what have the fairs been like, playing the fairs and, and getting to go and actually meet the people who made a career for you on television? Well, I like working live fairs and doing all the shows and all that stuff, and once in a while you get there in the microphones. Yeah. They don't always work at, at ounces, ounces, as it works, so when that cuts in and out, 
doesn't work. You know what I'm saying? I know exactly <laughs> what you are saying. That's wonderful. Now, now it's kind of just kind of a nostalgic question. If you and Steve were to ever stop working, which I don't think will happen, how do you want to be remembered? Well, you want to answer this question? I think more than anything else is Little Red uh, gave me, along with Ralph Emery, gave me just the freedom to do whatever I really want to do. You know, it's they say money's not everything. Mm -hmm. But it makes poor being a lot more fun. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I've owned airplanes and houseboats and lake homes and toured all over the country and we're getting ready to go up to Canada and, I, and I'm working on a brand new thing I can tell you about in a little bit once we put Red back away to close this up. Yeah. Um, I think that, it, it, you know, here's the thing is if you're out of sight, you're out of mind. In two, three, four, five years down the line, you'd say shocking Red and somebody would say who? Because, you know, I remember calling up and talking to somebody up in, in uh, uh, Group W. I said, I want to do some advertisement, run some Shock and Red Doll commercials on Nashville now with Ralph Emery. And the lady said, who's Ralph Emery? I said, you're Group W? You do all the marketing for the Nashville Network and you don't know who Ralph Emery is? Well, not, not really. I said, I suppose you don't know who Porter Wagner is either, huh? Roy Acuff? Gee, no, no, not really. I said, you guys do the marketing for the mm -hmm. Nashville Network? You need to get your books out. So I guess more than anything else is we're pretty lucky being in the country music field. Yes. Because country music fans never forget. It's like little Jimmy Dickens. He never had a record for 60 years. And in his 90s, he was still touring. After he had made the Bird of Paradise flap your nose and shopping for dresses and the stuff that he had out. That's all it took. It only took one hit. And because of the power of television, you got to realize something. When you see Little Red on TV. Yeah, along with Ralph Emery. Yes. And... Uh, when you see him on television, when you watch that, and you're in front of four or five or six or seven million viewers, mm -hmm. think about this, Matt. I'd have to have Red at a fair in front of a thousand people at a fair, and I'd have to do that show seven days a week, 365 days a year, for 27 years straight to be in front of as many people that seen him every night one appearance on Nashville Now and you're in front of seven million. There's a thousand thousands in a million. Mm -hmm. That means it takes three years to reach one. Times eight is like 24 years. It takes mm -hmm. 24 years when, when 8.2 million viewers watch the Nashville Network and you see Little Shock and Red, that many people know them. So, you know, you could ask people today about uh, you know, Edgar Bergen or, you know, some of the other puppeteers and mm -hmm. Lamb Chop. Yeah. Some people don't even know who that is, you know, yeah. youth today. You and I do because we're in that same field. So I guess my only thought would be for as long as people are around in the era that me and Red are, that they remember, oh, I remember when he told that joke about this. You mentioned when we were off camera mm -hmm. about a couple of jokes that Red did, a couple things he did, yeah. a couple things that he saw. And, uh, Man, can you believe that? They're still outside working on the yard. Yeah, that's cool. Green side up. <laughs> Green side up. Red, what are you doing? Oh, it's a couple dummies out there laying sod. <laughs> Green side up. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yes, and I gotta say, just off of that is me, very personal, just from me, from that perspective, is 
don't just think of it as that generation, because me, I am inspired by Red and by you and your talent every day. I mean, we still, to this day, we are referencing Subaru, you are a bus, <laughs> you know? We build new fans. Oh, that's makes nice No, we did Subaru because I went to a, a high school, they do, uh, performing arts high school, and they didn't bus us to the school. We had to carpool because it was a charter school. And for the last year of the carpool, one of the drivers, the main drivers, had a Subaru. So we'd always joke back and forth, hey, just read it. I told him, you know, first date, just read it backwards. You are a bus. You are a bus to school. So you've had, you have an impact, um, and I'm sure there are others out there like me who just... Um, have, have the kind of soul for a bit of the older stuff. And well, you know, this industry is the, the biggest secret, or not secret, but the biggest unspoken word, not unspoken, the biggest myth, and not a myth, in Nashville, Tennessee is, how did the industry get away from traditional country music? Mm -hmm. all, when you watch the CMA Awards and all that stuff, it's a bunch of rap, it's a bunch of junk. Mm -hmm. The people that can really play steel, twin fiddles, sing country music. When you used to hear Conway sing, you knew it was Conway. When you heard George sing, you knew it was George Jones. John Anderson, mm -hmm. you knew it was John. Now, you know, when you hear Willie Nelson, you knew it was Willie. When you hear half these artists today, they all sound the same and they all sing the same thing. Yeah. They're going down to the creek, get their pickup truck, get a couple beers, take their girlfriend, go have a party and go let, you know, blow off some steam and all that. And half of them have never moved anywhere out of a subdivision, have nothing to do with country music or country music living. Yeah. But they're all singing about it because that's what the industry wants out there. That's what they're selling and there's no room for anything else. So all of us true comedy, puppeteers, country music, that era of people, mm -hmm. you know, we, we still enjoy that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Shotgun Red, any, any last words before Steve puts you back in the case? Well, let me just say one thing. Steve is not a very good ventriloquist. No, no we were talking about that earlier. That's okay, because I'm no dummy either. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, Matt. See you later, See you later guys. See you later, Red. Well, Red had to go back to the farm, uh, but uh, I've been back here again to close this out with Steve Hall. Thank you so much for inviting us into your home. Hey, it's been great. Your parents are wonderful. You're a super guy, and good luck on your podcast thing. And, you know, you get back in town again sometime, maybe we'll do lunch or something. Thank you so much. Hey, nice talking with you, man. Nice talking. All right, bye-bye. Emery, welcome to Talk for Two. It is an honor to have you. How are you, sir? Well, I'm okay. I uh, have a few medical problems, but uh, we're working on those. Oh, that's... I'm glad to hear we got... I have something called neuropathy. Neuropathy. And uh, I'm going to have some tests for that. Where do you get uh, it? Where do you... Where do sorry? You, where in your body is the neuropathy? It's in my, uh, it's in my legs. Yeah. Particularly my right leg. Yeah, my mother has the exact same thing, so I know that all too well, and, and I wish you well with it. Well, the reason we're here today is to talk about your career, and one of the things oh. I've always been so curious about is when were you first exposed to country music? Well, uh, I lived with my grandparents because my mother and father divorced when I was about four or five. And uh, my grandfather, Fuquay, my mother's people, I lived with them, and they loved the Grand Ole Opry and always listened to it on Saturday night. And uh, 
I love them and I love the radio. I always love the radio. So anyway, uh, I found my baby book and unfortunately I found it after my mother passed away because there were some things in it that I would have included in my book, including, uh, it says, uh, name the baby's favorite radio station, and it said WSM. And so I imagine uh, I, I came to like country music at a very, very early age. Wonderful. That is that is so cool. And what age did you start in radio? I know your journey eventually. I started radio when I was 18. Wow. What station? Uh, WTPR in Paris, Tennessee. Your Dixie neighbor. Yes. And you were close to the age I am now when you started at that favorite station of yours, WSM. Yes. I worked at a number of radio stations before I got to WSM. I started at WTPR in Paris, Tennessee. I then moved to Nashville to WNAH. From there, I moved to Franklin, Tennessee at WAGG. From there, I moved to... These are the AM days before FM. I moved to WSIX in Nashville as the morning man. From there, I moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. WLCS, the number one station there, they heard about my work and offered me a job with more money, and so I went down there for about a month. And I got a call from another radio station in Nashville, and WMAK, and they said, uh, uh, why'd you go to Baton Rouge? I said, for more money. They said, what are they paying you? I said, they're paying me a hundred and a quarter a week. Now, we're talking about money as it was related in the 50s. It was worth a lot more. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they said, well, we'll pay you the same thing if you'll come back to Nashville. So I came back to Nashville to WMAK, and by now it is uh, 1956, and uh, I... Uh, I'm not going to go into all the circumstances, but WSN had an opening for their all-night disc jockey position. And I, uh, WSN had a lot of my broadcasting heroes on it. And I, uh, anyway, uh, I went up and applied for the job. And the way they auditioned you, they put you on the air for a week. And if they liked you, uh, they would uh, hire you. And if they didn't care for you, uh, they would tell you. Well, I went and worked my week. And uh, then I went back to whatever else I was doing. And I got a call uh, a couple of days later asking if I would like to come to WSM full time and uh, this would have been uh, the fall of uh, 1957 I guess it was so uh, I began uh, working on this 50,000 watt radio station that was heard over most of the United States and I was 24 years old <laughs> 
What was really interesting about that job, uh, it had no commercials when I first took it. Hmm. Uh, and uh, anyway, they had some PSAs. You know what a PSA is. Absolutely, yes. Public service. Mm-hmm. And so they had this book with these PSAs, and then they had the log, and I ran my own equipment. Anyway, they did not tell me to read these PSAs or when to read them. They just said, if you happen to read one of these, write it down on the log when you did it. And here I am, 24 years old, turned loose on one of the biggest radio signals in America, (laughs) and uh, given complete autonomy. Wow. That's really cool. As I look back on that, I think that would never happen today. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. So, did you read any of those PSAs? Did you? Would you go? Oh to yeah, them? every once in a while. Uh, if the if the notion struck me, and then I uh, I set up a system of uh, an open door policy. If you came by the radio station, you could come on in, and if you made records, uh, sit down for an interview, and I would interview you and play your record and uh, it helped to make the long night from 10 at night till 5 in the morning it helped the long night to go faster and I've made a lot of friends that way and met I met most of the talent of that era absolutely and I'm sure you met a lot of people on that show specifically that were up and coming that that made it really big in country music and then later saw you on Nashville Now. Well, yeah, that's a short summary. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1963, uh, they liked my voice, and so they put me on. WSM had a television station, Mm -hmm. and uh, they really had nothing to lead, and we were an NBC station, and had nothing to lead into the Today Show. So they put me on to build a show uh, preceding the Today Show. And uh, I did that for quite a while. I did it twice. I I did it uh, from 63 to about 68, and then they put me on in the afternoon. And I did that for all a year or so. And uh, then they took me off the afternoons and decided to fold that show, mm-hmm. and which was okay with me. And uh, I, uh, I took a job. Well, I, I continued my all night show, and I got a job in New York for a company called Cinevox. And they were a syndicator. And uh, they had a good friend in Nashville named Jack Stapp. Mm-hmm. Jack Stapp was the founder of Tree International Music, one of the world's largest publishing companies. And Jack, uh, they asked Jack who he would recommend to come to New York and record once a week. Uh, my syndicated radio show. 
which we, they, well, first of all, I had to go to New York and meet these people. Mm -hmm. And they seemed to like me. And uh, they said, Mr. Stapp thinks a lot of you and uh, thinks you would work out beautifully for us. So we're offering you the job. And uh, so I kept that for about uh, almost two years. And then the fellow who was putting up all the money for this new company, the syndicator, mm -hmm. had a heart attack and died. And with him died the company. That's a shame. And uh, so I'm still doing uh, all-night radio. And uh, there was a syndicator in Nashville called Showbiz. And mm -hmm. Showbiz syndicated television and radio. And they built the Porter Wagoner Show, mm -hmm. which was the most popular syndicated uh, country music show of its era. Had a young girl named Dolly Parton on it. <laughs> yep. And uh, anyway, uh, Showbiz... I uh, decided I could go to work for them uh, doing syndicated radio, country music. And uh, in Nashville, it was, it was a little different than in New York. I had access to all these stars, and I would have a country music star on each week. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would tape the interview part and pretend to play the records and uh, when the taping session was over the engineer would mix the music in just as if he had done it while we were there so uh, i was back in radio syndication again and then in 1963 and uh, WSM Television offered me, I got distracted. I, anyway, they offered me the position of doing a show ahead of the Today Show on television. Mm -hmm. And uh, met a lot of country music stars that way. Is that the morning show that Steve Hall crashed? Is well, What's the question? I said, is that the morning show that Steve Hall crashed with Shotgun Red? Oh, no, that came much later. The uh, This show was called Opry Star Spotlight. Or, no, it's called, it was called the Ralph Emery Show. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had, uh, what they did, they made a deal with the Musicians Union and taped 10 songs with about 20 different uh, grand old Opry stars, and I had a video library. I was a video jack, and uh, and didn't have any budget for any live music until about two years later, when I finally got sick of those tapes, playing them over and over, and I talked them into letting me have a band, and uh, that show ultimately became the number one show in Nashville. And uh, it uh, was the highest rated locally produced television shows 
among those shows that preceded the Today Show all around America. We were the highest rated uh, introduction to the Today Show. That's incredible. I think that speaks to the popularity and staying power of country music. Yes. So, so how many iterations of the morning show were there? How many different versions? How many? Uh, I don't understand the question. You said the morning show that Steve Hall crashed came much later. So I'm curious how many different morning shows you hosted before well, going. I did that show twice. I uh, I told you that uh, mm-hmm. they put me on the afternoon and then ultimately the, folded that show, I guess because of uh, expenses. Anyway, in uh, 1971 or two, I got a call from Channel 4 asking me if I would come back and do the morning television show again. It had kind of gone down the tubes, didn't have any ratings. I said, you know, I've done that before, and uh, I'm not all that interested in doing it again. Uh, They've always been nice to me. I said, tell you what, I'll do it for a year, and surely in a year you can find somebody to do it on a regular basis. So they said, okay. And so that year ran on for all of the 70s, the 80s, and part of the 90s. It ran on for almost 30 years. It's amazing. Meantime, in, uh, in uh, 1983, they created the Nashville Network. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I was used to doing live television, they hired me to host the key show on that network called Nashville Now. And uh, so I was now doing two daily live TV shows, one in the morning for Channel 4 and one at night, same day, on uh, the Nashville network. So I was busy. How did you find the energy to do it? I mean, how did you... It was I was sleeping in ships. <laughs> and uh, I was a workaholic. And it was difficult. Uh, what you're asking me, how, is, how did I find the energy? Uh, I just did. I wanted very much to... I wanted the money, number one. Mm-hmm. I've got a family, and uh, uh, so I... Uh, I did it for the money. But it turned it turned you into a legend, sir, if I may say. Uh, you you made a lot of people's careers in country music. Well, I, I, had a, I had a lot of fun, too. I worked with some great people and with a lot of country music stars. And with those two shows, I met and interviewed just about all of them. It's amazing. I'm curious what your advice is to somebody that wants to get into broadcasting, that wants to 
have a career and host many shows like you did. What would you say to them? Well, first of all, there is a huge myth that there's a lot of money in broadcasting that you're going to get in broadcasting and get rich. That's not true. Particularly when you start, there are not any uh, high-paying jobs. Mm -hmm. You have to work your way up to those. And uh, so you have to be willing to make a sacrifice. My first radio job paid me $45 a week, and after taxes, $39.50 a week. And uh, from there, I went on to better things and more money. But it Mm -hmm. took a while. Mm -hmm. So I would say you got to have a lot lot of patience and uh, equip yourself with as much knowledge about your subject as you can. And that's the, one of the reasons I, I I became sort of famous for my interviews. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of like going to College 101, uh, learning all about country music by talking to the stars. It's amazing. And, and it shows... And especially with Nashville now, the last thing I want to ask you about is a story that Steve Hall told me just yesterday, that they were going to destroy the Nashville Now library when Spike TV bought the Nashville network, and you jumped in and saved those shows. Well, sort of. <laughs> You're giving me too, way too much credit. <laughs> uh, my... I had a manager, and uh, he was also a lawyer, and he had been one of President Kennedy's uh, Secret Service men. And uh, he managed a number of country music stars, like Reba, he made Reba a star, (laughs) and some others. And uh, he took me on, and when uh, Nashville now, and he, he... did my contract with TNN. Mm -hmm. Anyway, when uh, TNN was over, uh, we heard that, you know, uh, CBS bought TNN for over a billion, that's with a B, billion dollars. Wow. And the people used to say, why'd they sell it? I said, well, Mr. Gaylord, who owned it, they offered him a billion dollars. Wouldn't you have sold it for, for that price? Anyway, CBS did not have a cable system, so they bought TNN, and it became the CBS cable system. And uh, anyway, we heard by the grapevine, I'm not sure how we heard this, but we heard that the lawyers who were advising the people who bought TNN to get rid of all those tapes. Uh, cost you too much money to store them, and you don't need them. Nobody wants to see them. It's just that old country music, and uh, there's no value to us. Hmm. So, anyway... Long story short, uh, 
my manager being a lawyer, went to their lawyers and uh, reminded them that storing all those tapes, over 10 years worth of tapes, and remember it was five nights a week, yeah. and uh, storing all those tapes cost them a lot of money. And they could get a wonderful tax write-off if they would give those tapes to the Country Music Association and to the Country Music Foundation, the home of the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. So long story short, we worked out a deal whereby the people who owned the tapes, we talked them into giving them to the Hall of Fame, and that's where they reside today. That is an amazing story, one of many shared by a legend uh, in country music and in broadcasting. And uh, I think uh, I just, I really admire your work. You inspire me as an interviewer, and uh, you inspire a generation. So, Mr. Ralph Emery, thank you so much for your time here today. And the Shotgun Red Band, here they are. There was a boy in Arkansas would listen to his ma when she told him he should go to school. He'd sneak away in the afternoon, take a little walk, and then pretty soon you'd find him at the local auction box. Well, now he'd stand and listen carefully, then pretty soon he began to see how the auctioneer talks so rapidly. He said, oh my, it's dear die, I've got to learn that auction car, gonna be like Mark and be an auctioneer. One of five dollar bit of now, thirty out, thirty me, thirty make a thirty bit of all thirty out of him, thirty hula bit of thirty out of him. Her lot of bit of now, thirty five me, thirty five make a thirty five bit of thirty five, we'll be getting a bit of that, thirty five out of bit. Yeah, Mark! Ah, Marcus on the guitar over there, picking up. Well, now it's time when Alan, he did his best, and all could see, didn't Jesse practice call bits both night day. And his pap would find him behind the barn, did the working up, and all the storm was dry to imitate the auctioneer. Well, now his pap sits on, he just can't stand to have a mediocre man, tell the things that auction do in our good name. Well, I'll send you off to auction school, then you pay nobody's fool, you can take your place among the best. And thirty-five dollar bit now, forty dollar forty bit, forty make it forty bit, forty forty dollar bit, forty two dollar bit, forty dollar bit. Four dollar bit now, forty-five bit, forty-five make it forty-five bit, forty-five will get a bit of that forty-five dollar bit. Well, now from the boy that went to school, there grew a man who played it cool and came back home full-fledged auctioneer. Then the people came from miles around to hear him make of that rhythmic sound as a build their hearts with such happy cheer. Well, now, straight out from shore to shore, he had all he could do and more. 